0: Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Ghani and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our interview for this episode is Lorena Diaz de Leon, Lorena is a doctoral candidate at the Center of Environmental and Health Applied Sciences in San Luis Potosí, Mexico. She is currently working on environmental pollutants exposure biomarkers that affect kidney and respiratory health of indigenous people in Mexico, as well as in the development of screening methodologies for disease detection. She holds a degree in biotechnology engineering and a master's in biomedical sciences from the Autonomous University of San Luis Potosí. Our guest today is a professor at the Institute for Research in Ecosystems and Sustainability of the National University of Mexico and coordinator of the National Strategic Programme on Energy Transition of the National Council of Science and Technology of Mexico. His research focuses on climate change mitigation, bioenergy, and ecotechnology. He has a Bachelor in Physics from the National University of Mexico and a Master and PhD in Energy and Resources from University of California, Berkeley. Among many accolades, our guest today was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007 as a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I'm excited to welcome our guest, Omar Macera. Welcome to the show, Omar and Lorena.
1: Thank you, Shazad, for the introduction. It is a pleasure to be here interviewing Dr. Omar Macera. Thank you very much, Dr. Omar, for your participation at Atmospheric Tales podcast.
2: Thank you, Lorena. I'm pleased to be part of this uh, podcast and to be talking with you about these exciting topics.
1: Well, first, I want to talk about a little bit of biomass fuels, cooking and air quality. And the World Health Organization estimates that 3.8 million deaths occur every year as a result of households' exposure to smoke from dirty cookstoves and fuels especially in developing countries where women cook for long periods on wood and other biomass-based stouts without proper ventilation. The effects on health due to long exposure to the smoke or indoor biomass burning have been associated with acute respiratory infections and chronic pulmonary disease, among other diseases. Can you please give us a brief overview of the impacts of burning solid fuels or biofuels?
2: What you described is a serious problem globally about 40% of the total world population cooks with uh, solid fuels, like 2.8 billion people, and a large fraction of them, are about 2.6 billion people, with uh, solid uh, biofuels. That means good fuel, residues from agriculture, and even dung. Well, the thing is that these people rely on these fuels, but also on very poor technologies, no? But basically, they cook with biofuels on open fires that do not have a chimney or other means to get the smoke out of the, for example, out of the kitchen in this example. And so uh, what happens is that this uh, smoke gets uh, very concentrated in particular when people cook indoors and constitute a major health in terms of, as you mentioned, no, acute diseases related to pulmonary diseases, but other type of problems including cancer, etc. Basically, biomass is used because of many things. One has to do with the local availability. We are talking among these 2.7 billion people, there are about nine, 900 million that really are the poorest on earth. But also because biomass is usually very much available in rural areas, is low cost or zero cost. And it's also very much adapted to the local cultures and cooking habits and many other things. So, even when people have opportunities to get the different fuels, they usually stack. No? So they use the biomass with other fuels in combination, no? for example, LPG and, and biomass. So it's not just a, an issue of poverty, but it has also to do with culture, preferences and many other things.
1: So beyond the impact on indoor air quality, residential biomass burning for cooking and heating also has an impact on the ambient air quality. So even with the perfect ventilation, if indoor air quality is improved, outdoor air quality will still remain an issue associated with burning biofuels. How do you view the similarities and differences of these two issues, like the indoor and outdoor air pollution impacts in the context of clean cooking and heating?
2: Okay, well, (laughs) you asked a very complex uh, question and I I will try to explain a little bit. Let's go step by step. The first thing is when we talk about fuels, like uh, the burning of solid fuels, we always need to talk about burning with a particular device because biomass per se is not a dirty fuel. There are many ways to burn biomass in a very efficient and clean way. So we need to be sure that when we talk about, it's not about biomass per se, but it's about a combination of fuels and technologies. Even if you have kerosene or even LPG, if they are not used with the proper device, they also produce a lot of pollutants. So first of all, the regarding indoor air pollution? Well, there are ways to reduce pollution, no? We, for example, we have been working here in Mexico, and Mexico is considered even a member of the OECD, so it's a a fairly industrialized country. However, one-third of the population cooks with uh, fuel wood. We are talking about 28 million people, and they do so because, in some cases, as I said, because of poverty, but also because of culture. There's a lot of people, about one-third of them, cook fuel wood in combination with LPG, for example. First, we have to then to address this issue of indoor air pollution. What we do, we have seen that even when people adopt LPG stoves in many rural areas, that is the context of Mexico. In Mexico, fuel wood is used in Latin America, mostly in the rural areas. So they usually do that. They adopt the LPG, but they continue using fuel wood. So if you have a very efficient stove, uh, but then if you don't work improving the biomass component, then you get also very high levels of of indoor air pollution. So what we have been doing is to work on improving also the biomass and getting better combustion and a chimney to exit the the smoke. And thus we we can get then a very important reduction in indoor air pollution. In fact, we have in the latest models tested here, we get 95 to 98% of the indoor air pollution out. Those households that adopt this stove can get to the WHO level, so the stoves can be clean, and the combustion also is much improved. So we reduce, you know, the gases that exit through the chimney by 68% or, or more, so the pollution to the outdoors is also greatly reduced. Remember that we need to understand the outdoor pollution is a factor, not the emission rate, but the amount of total emissions you emit. So if you have a more efficient stove and you use half of the wood, then you are emitting half of the pollution. But if also you improve the efficiency of the combustion, you reduce further the pollutants. So at the end, you are reducing the emissions to the outdoors by 70% or more. What I'm trying here to address is, first, that there are possibilities to improve the combustion of biomass in a clean way at, at home, but there are also options to reduce the outdoor pollution and thus the pollution that you may cause to other in the neighborhood. This could be a problem in a very large cities, but we have done some modeling studies and, and some studies here in, in Mexico, and there is no such a problem for small cities or rural areas.
1: Okay, thank you very much. And how has been the response of the people when you are asking them not only to change the way they cook, like with the stove, but by changing also the fuel that they use?
2: Well, again, Lorena, you are asking me very good questions. In this case, we need to take a different approach from the typical innovation. We cannot go and produce the innovations at faraway centers, even located, for example, in other countries or even in Mexico, in the large cities, and think that these innovations will be accepted like this and used, maybe accepted, but used in the long term by women in particular. Now we are talking about cooking. What has been happening, the experience in Mexico and in many other parts of the world, is that the stoves, even very fancy stoves, etc., are initially accepted, but then people realize that they are not adequate to perform many of the cooking tasks that require, for example, very large pots, flat pans, like in the case of tortillas in Mexico, another thing for which the typical Western-type stoves are not designed for, or even some of the improved cookstops that have been designed also in other regions are not adequate. So the first thing to do is to conduct a different type of innovation. We call it participatory innovation, grassroots innovation. There are different ways to name it, but basically is to co-create solutions with the people, no? Work with the people in order to produce solutions. And then what we have seen doing this for many years, we have seen that the adoption rate and the long-term use of the stores is greatly increased. And at the end, this is what matters, the long-term benefits of these programs. So really, we need to take a different approach and... This is something that is a breakthrough in the type of approach we normally conduct in the research centers. It's not easy, but I think it's a fundamental element in this uh, innovation process to ask the users to work with the users, to understand their priorities, their perceptions, and then to work together, you know, some solutions and test them in the field and then go on and disseminate the options chosen by local women in particular, no?
1: Okay, thank you very much. Now, talking about ecotechnology, what are the advantages of using clean technologies such as an ecological cook stove in these rural settings we're talking about in both the long and short term? And how the use of ecotechnologies and clean fuels can help to reduce adverse effects linked to indoor and outdoor air pollution?
2: Well, there are many, many benefits from these ecotechnologies, and the, these benefits include health, environmental, economic, and even cultural benefits. Here, we are talking about not just about the technology, like in the, the case of this. We call in Mexico ecological stoves, but well, we are talking here about the uh, cook stoves, for example, that have an improved combustion chamber. The combustion is made cleaner, and also they have a chimney to get the smoke out of the kitchen. And the, the basic thing is not the success of these ecotechnologies, we rely not only on this design principles, but also, as we said before, on the way they are developed, adapted to the local context, and then disseminated. We are talking about here about an integrated approach, for example, let's concentrate on the cooking, on the ecological stocks. Well, we have been documented that they can save up to 60% of the fuel, about 80% of the greenhouse gas emissions, and reduce the indoor air pollution by 95% in terms of these fugitive emissions that are into the kitchen. So at the end, what do these represent? Well, for users, they represent in terms of health at least 10 more years of healthy life. In terms of economic benefits, they represent a savings of income, no? Because they don't have to purchase as much good as they used to or collect the wood, in many cases, women and children are in charge of collecting the fuel wood. And in terms of the climate, it represents reduction in pollutants like black carbon or methane and others. CO2 also, of course. So there are many advantages. The thing is that some of them, users need to get clear, tangible advantages, not just in things that are important from a public health perspective. What do women, for example, in our region value the most? What they value the most with these ecological cookstoves is that they get a cleaner, better looking kitchen. This is what they value the most. And so here is uh, very important for for women to get a lot of dishes and things on the kitchen and to have it clean. And this is almost impossible with open fires. Whereas with the clean cookstoves, they really can have a very nice looking kitchen, clean kitchen, and they are very happy about it. We have seen that this is one of the success uh, factors for uh, these ecotechnologies.
1: Okay, so this ecotechnology you are talking about, the ecological stove, we know that you are well known for the development of the Batsari Ecological Stove. Can you please explain to our audience what are the principles of this cleaner stove and how did you start this project?
2: Talking about the principles, it basically, as in the case of most of the improved cookstoves, there are two components. One is to get the combustion cleaner in terms of more efficient, and this is done with an improved design of the combustion chamber. The combustion chamber in the stove is basically the place where you put the sticks, the pieces of wood, in order to burn them. So this stove has an insulated a combustion chamber with a design that assures that the gases are combusted or the wood is combusted in a more efficient way. And then we get the gases or the exhaust gases through the stove. And so they kit the comal, where it's a very important piece for in Mexico, no, to make tortillas and other types of meals. And then two secondary pots that are used to reheat food. And then the gases go out through a chimney. In some cases, we adapt, we include a water heater in the chimney so people can also heat the water at the same time as they cook. As I said, this results in improvements in the performance of the stove with regards to the open fire. For me, it's something that goes back to more than 20 years ago, 30 years. When I was doing my PhD at Berkeley, I started looking at the use of fuel in rural Mexico in the context of how much energy was devoted to different uses. And we discovered that about 80% of total energy in the rural villages was devoted to cooking. And so started to talk with the local people and local women. We also uh, discovered that these uh, activities took a lot of time to be accomplished. And So we started talking with different villagers and women about the possibility to do something different. At that time, the stove that had been uh, developed was the Lorena stove that was created in Guatemala in the 70s. And so we took that as, as our first model and brought that to the, to the region where I work in, in the central high lines of Mexico. And so we started a process, as I said before, like a participatory innovation process where the women took a look at this stove tested it for the different, the main tasks, beans, tortillas, other things that are important in Mexico, and suggested some improvements. So we then at the university worked with these suggestions, proposed new designs. And so the process took about four years because we really developed like three or four models until we got to this present one that is a model that really can be disseminated and produced locally, but also with a robust design no, that can be done in different regions and with different type of materials, etc. What started as a small, really small project in the local village, now we have been not uh, centralized, but by this process of teaching other organizations to build the stove and to organize like stove builders in different regions of Mexico. We have disseminated about 250,000 stoves throughout the country and even in some other countries in Central America, etc.,
1: Thank you, Omar. It's a very cool story. And I wanted to ask: what are the tensions between making the clean available versus making the available clean? In other words, making biomass burning cleaner versus access to gas and electric for cooking and heating?
2: Excellent question again, Lorena and I met Kirk Smith in 1990 at Berkeley, 1988, when I was doing my master's program. So we had many, many discussions with him. And since I was doing my PhD at Mexico, I discovered that we cannot get only one solution. There is no silver bullet for cooking. As you say, you know, this tension needs to be solved. But what we call now this stacking, clean stacking options, that is, we really need to work in parallel with the two and depending on the people, depending on the context, depending, we will get in some cases, like in large cities, making the the clean available works best. But in other regions and the poorer sector and the more the faraway regions, really you need to work a lot on making the the available clean. And this makes a huge difference for local people. So at the end, it's a combination. And in Mexico, it's a good example, no? You go to houses here, I have in half an hour from when I live, you know, rural people that have already car and other things, they have, you know, they have a microwave and sometimes refrigerator, many other appliances, in many cases, but for cooking, you not know, they heat some food with electricity using the microwave. They have an LPG store where they reheat the food and make some of the meals. And they also have, for example, a Patsari store where they do other things. So at the end, you know, it's a combination of technologies and possibilities. This is the only way to really displace the open fires. We should also remember that the open fires and the biomass burning is not done just for cooking, but also for water heating, for animal feeding, for space heating, and so We really need to promote and provide uh, local users with a set of options. My current understanding and the way I see the solutions now are more into this combination, more integrated strategies. So we really need to work at both ends, and they are both equally important in my view
1: now i want to talk about a little bit of implementation so i am currently working with rural indigenous communities in mexico where we are assessing not only lung damage but also kidney damage that has been associated with byproducts from incomplete biomass combustion which we know are primarily caused by the lack of clean cooking and heating from an environmental justice point of view Can you talk about the disproportionate impact of both air pollution and climate change on indigenous communities in Mexico and Central America and how are these vulnerabilities associated with structural social inequality in these countries?
2: Okay, you are posing me all the very difficult questions, but I think you are totally right. We are dealing with a problem that is the inequality. These uh, 40 years of globalization and liberalization took a high cost, particularly, for example, in rural Latin America, in rural Mexico. And so we have these uh, societies where there is a large segment of the population that, that live in poverty, and a small sector that is getting richer and richer. And unfortunately, this is an outcome of policies. And yes, the poor are those that suffer. The poor, and I should say women, no? Rural poor women are at the bottom of no? the scale in terms of the highest risk to the health and the highest impacts in terms of also the vulnerability because they, they lack many of the possibilities that, that we have to improve the, their conditions. I think it's part of this centralized strategy where everything comes from the center and the local, the rural, the poorest people are always at the end of the decision-making process, at the end of the priority. And we need to reverse that. And that's why I started working on ecotechnologies, because I, I realized that we cannot just simply promote solutions that were designed for cities and even for countries in the north and try to really just adopt them here in the South, here in in rural areas, in the poorest sector, we really need to work with different options. For example, the dissemination of new technologies need to be a way also for local people to get new possibilities for income, to create local enterprises, not just to get connected to the grid and just to buy from global corporations, the electricity or the LPG, et cetera, but really to get their opportunities in terms of small enterprises, For example, in the case of biomass, many cases, the resources are locally available. So I think we need to really find ways to empower these local communities to give them more possibilities. And uh, of course, including the access to electricity, for example, through renewables, decentralized power and by other means. But this is a political economy thing. It's not just a technical no, or an economic aspect. There is now a very hot uh, debate in Mexico regarding the way we do science. What is the correct scientific uh, praxis. The conventional wisdom says that we scientists have the truth. We follow the scientific method and we know what should be done. And indigenous people and local people do not know anything and need to be told even about the solution. I think this is totally wrong. It has been shown in practice that it's wrong, particularly working with rural areas. And so we really need a scientist to change our mind, to change the paradigm and to change the scientific practice. We really need to go and work closer with the local communities. And this is true in rural areas, but it's true also in urban areas, particularly when we talk about the development of solutions to the local problems. So I hope these reflections also help us to to move away from this conventional paradigm top-down Scientists to users to, to get a more friendly, we call in, in Mexico, dialogue of knowledge, diálogo de saberes is in Spanish, that I think should be a lot more promoted in the academia.
1: Thank you, Omar. Moving on, what are the intersections of air pollution and climate change when it comes to energy required for cooking and residential heating? Can you talk about the tensions in the global south? In making clean air accessible versus impact on global climate? And can you discuss this in the context of the ecological stops?
2: Exactly. There is a tension, not unsolvable, I think, but of course, ideally, we would like to move in a sustainable path where we could solve all the problems at the same time. But of course, when dealing with the complex problems, many times the solutions, you maximize one aspect and you get problems with other. And I think in terms of climate change, for local users, of course, is not a priority. But at least from what we have been conducting or finding from our research, is that we really can do both. For example, with these ecological stoves, by reducing the amount of fuel used and the, reducing the the emissions rate of these non-CO2 pollutants, the short-lived pollutants and others, then we are able to reduce the impact on climate. So I think there are ways to get both benefits at the local and at the global level. To what extent one should be Prioritize uh, against the other. Well, it depends also on the different context, and it's something that needs to be also worked with the national government, etc. No, but in principle, I think the tension could be larger if you promote a large program of, let's say, just LPG, and and then yes, there is a tension because you are increasing the use of fossil fuels and at the same time trying to reduce climate change warming. That depends, of course, on the biomass that is formed. And there's a lot of debates, but I think there are ways to minimize the tension. And particularly if we target the local population in terms of tangible benefits, and we try to assure that these benefits as a byproduct, they also have these climate benefits. So I don't think it's really unsolvable.
1: I want to talk a little bit about your personal journey. What are the challenges you have faced in making transfer of technology from academic research to applying it in different communities? And generally speaking, how do you think clean technology solutions such as the cook stove can be adapted to different locations, populations and in different social cultural contexts?
2: My journey is an interesting journey, I think, in terms of not having followed the typical path. I did my bachelor in physics at the, the National University of Mexico. And at that time, the only acceptable task for physicists was to devote themselves to the study of nuclear physics. Or you did something related to nuclear physics or you were wasting your time. So when I started working on renewable energy in the 80s, I was considered a black sheep. And then going to work with communities and not just staying at the lab was also not seen as a proper behavior in terms of scientists. Then I went to ERG to the Energy and Resources Group in California. Because this was an interdisciplinary group, they were also considered black sheep within the university. Even John Holdren, that very famous scientist, had trouble getting the group accepted. And so it has been a first doing interdisciplinary research and then working with local people or with other non-academic actors in terms of the your research has been challenging and has been uh, difficult through time. But it has been more and more evident that this is the way to go, no? in terms of getting benefits from your research, getting impacts. And when we see things so difficult, no? so challenging, like climate change, now this pandemic and things, the lesson I get from this is that we really need to work closer to society, no? to the users, but also we need to get a more interdisciplinary understanding of the problems. So I think it's really it has been challenging. But I am grateful for this impact on rural villages. And when you go to a village and you have been working for many, many, many years in a place, and then you see and you talk with a woman no, that you have been working and installed with her, a cook stove, etc. You see the kitchen that is now clean and she tells you that she's better and, and you see no, that the situation has improved. I think that for me is the most important reward, much more than a paper or citations or, or other things. But as I said, things are changing, and I hope in the future we really can promote more of this type of approaches. I don't think that this is the only way to go for all the problems, for other things, but I think should be a key component of this global or more integrated research agendas, particularly to solving this very complex problem like energy transition, climate change, and other things.
1: Dr. Amar, it has been a pleasure to be here talking to you, and to see Ecological stuff Program from your perspective. I am very pleased to meet you and thank you for the opportunity to be here.
2: You're welcome, Lorena. I really, I thank you and Shazad for this uh, opportunity. Uh, I think the work you are doing globally is amazing and please continue doing so and continue getting the experiences from other people in different parts of the world is something that we really need. So thank you for, for everything.
0: With that, I would like to thank our guest Omar Masera and our interviewer Lorena Diaz de Leon for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and share episodes on social media.